Jerry, any reaction, reaction Jerry? to the court's decision, Jerry? On Monday, Jerry the Monk Hutch emerged from Dublin's criminal courts of justice a free man. The six-year-old was found not guilty of the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in 2016. Long-haired and slightly stunned-looking, he didn't answer any of the questions shouted at him by the media as he and his legal team walked out the front door of the courts and down the street. Do you feel vindicated, Jerry? Congratulations, Jerry. Hutch had spent more than 600 days in prison awaiting trial. So now that he's free, where will he go and what will he do? And although he's been acquitted of the murder, he is still the focus of other ongoing Garda investigations. Meanwhile, following the verdict, the state has questions to answer, with the evidence gathered and used against Hutch falling so far short of the bar needed for conviction. I'm Bernice Harrison, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, what next for Jerry the Monk Hutch? Connor Lally, you were at the Criminal Courts of Justice on Monday for the verdict. What was the scene outside when Jerry Hutch walked out of the court a free man? The scenes outside were remarkable, yeah. I mean, it was a very unusual uh, day. I mean, the, the actual ruling of the court was a very long and drawn out process. It really lasted the morning for two hours and then in the afternoon for just over two hours as well. And it was the afternoon session that dealt with Jerry Hutch's case. Um, and as I say, while it did take two hours for the ruling to be read out, you knew from very early on that this was going to go one way and that he was going to be cleared. Do you have any reaction, Jerry, after you've been cleared of the murder of David Byrne? You know, sometimes when people are freed after being cleared in the, in these trials, they go out the side door or they have a car outside or whatever. But Jerry Hutch walked out the front door. There was the biggest scrum of, you know, journalists I've ever seen outside any courthouse in Ireland. He was with, you know, members of his legal team. They were trying to flag down a taxi going by. It took them a long time to actually flag down a taxi. They were walking up and down the street trying to get a cab. You had people passing, you know, cycling or walking past or even passing by in cars who were stopping and they were absolutely stunned to see Jerry Hutch on the street trying to hail a taxi after being, you know, cleared. Best of luck, Jerry. Best of luck, Jerry. He looked, I would say, a bit stunned looking, kind of dazed, I would say. The media were chasing after them. Everybody was shouting in, you know, questions at Jerry Hutch. How did he feel? Did he have anything to say? And so on. He didn't answer any questions at all. He didn't say one word. They eventually got a cab to stop, usher Jerry Hutch into it, and then the taxi was gone. Now, I'm just trying to put this in the, the, again, the context of sort of a normal court case, if you like. In that case, if, if somebody got off a murder charge for killing somebody, you'd hear from the family of the victim outside. And we know the Byrne family, some members of the Byrne family at least, did attend the, the trial. Um, did we hear anything from them? Were they there? Did we see them? Yeah, David Byrne's mom was there, you know, throughout the case, uh, Sadie Byrne. And, you know, she has been I suppose she has flown the flag for her son, as a lot of you know parents obviously would um, if they were in her uh, shoes. And she was at the case throughout. Now, 
at the conclusion of the case, um, she was there with a number of women from the Byrne family, younger women. As they were about to exit the courtroom, they put a, an umbrella up to shield themselves from the cameras outside. And they kind of shouted at the press to, you know, stand back, go away, leave them alone. And they ran up the street, really. So that was all over in, you know, 10 seconds, basically. This is the end, the somewhat chaotic end of uh, a 52-day trial. The special criminal court, the building that you just saw uh, Mr. Hutch emerge from, uh, home of Ireland's non-jury special criminal court used to try uh, gangland. So this wasn't an ordinary murder. This was a gangland hit and the state was bringing the case. So this is now, or could this be perceived as a failure of the state in this regard? Well, certainly the objective here was to secure a conviction against Jerry Hutch for the murder of David Byrne, and that failed. So so that's the failure. Um, so yes, it, the, the case from the state's point of view did fail. One thing that I was very surprised about um, from the outset of this trial, very early in the case, as the prosecution was setting out its stall, it made it clear that the prosecution was contending that Jerry Hutch was one of the three men in, in these uh, tactical mock uh, Garda uniforms who attacked the Regency Hotel that day, armed with the AK-47s. So they put forward this very specific proposition. It wasn't just that Jerry Hutch had been involved in the attack some way, had driven a car, had organised it, had paid for other people to be there. The claim was he was one of the three people with the AK-47s. When that came out, I was very surprised to hear that. Why? Well, bearing in mind, by the time the case got underway, more than six years had passed since the attack. We had written, I mean, I certainly had, lots of other journalists had, had written countless kind of stories about every angle on this case, all the people involved. Um, There'd been, you know, podcasts done about it, documentaries made, books, you know, written, the whole lot. I've never spoken to anybody who had heard from anybody on or off the record that Jerry Hutch was one of the three men or was part of the actual crew that was in the Regency Hotel on the day. I'd never heard that. Um, In the background, people wondered, was he part of it? Did he organise it? Did he have some role in it? But never that he was one of the three people dressed in these Garda uniforms. Because there was also sort of the evidence with your own eyes kind of thing, because this was an unusual situation because there was press photographers there. So it was actually a photo of the guys. Yeah, there was press photographers there and there was also CCTV imagery um, which was available that was actually recorded inside the hotel. And what that CCTV imagery uh, showed was the three men who were armed with the AK-47s, they were running around the hotel very quickly. And the judge said these were very agile men. They were dressed in essentially heavy overalls with balaclavas, hard helmets and all of that, carrying very heavy uh, firearms. And yet the judge said they were very quick on their feet. They were very agile, jumping around the place. The court basically said there's no way a man of Jerry Hutch's age, and Jerry Hutch is, is not a healthy, fit man. He's overweight. He's not healthy. The court basically ruled that there's no way a man of Jerry Hutch's age and in the shape that he was in at the time and is in now could have been one of those three men. And you could see that with your eyes when you viewed the CCTV. So the whole thesis that he was one of those three men was very unlikely to the point that the day that this was said in court, this claim didn't appear in some of the first court reports on the day because the journalists thought they'd heard it wrong. You know, they hadn't heard it properly, it gave people such a jolt that people were almost afraid to actually put it down in their stories, 
because they felt that they hadn't heard it properly or that this was somehow wrong and, you know, it'd be clarified. Was it irresponsible of the state through the DPP to bring this case when the evidence was so flimsy? I I think it's a really interesting question and it's a question a lot of people are asking. I mean, I think irresponsible is probably a big word. Um, Certainly at the end of it all, when you survey the kind of, you know, wreckage of the case, it's hard to understand why the prosecution put such confidence in Jonathan Dowdall as a witness. If you look at what they had, they basically had Jerry Hutch with the guns in the period shortly after the attack at the hotel. And then they had the word of Jonathan Dowdall basically saying that Jerry Hutch told him that he was part of the crew that carried out the attack at the hotel. So if Jonathan Dowdall had been a good witness, well then you probably have all you need to secure a conviction. But Jonathan Dowdall wasn't, you know, he was a bad witness. And that was very clear. And and it's not just because he's a proven liar and he's a, a criminal, a vicious, vicious criminal. Ultimately, I suppose the state just put all its eggs in the Jonathan Dowdall basket. They thought he was going to be a good witness. He was an awful witness. Not only did he fail to prove the state's case for them, he was so incapable of telling the truth about basic things that he he essentially blew the state's case out of the water. There was one really intriguing um, day or two in court when Jonathan Dowdall, he was kind of being, you know, asked about what kind of a, you know, person he was and who he, you know, hung out with and, you know, what his uh, background was. And, He was asked about his relationship with IRA terrorist Pierce McCauley. And at first he said he didn't really know Pierce McCauley. He kind of knew him, didn't really know him that well. Then eventually he said he went up to see him in jail maybe two or three times. And then when logs were produced from the jail where Pierce McCauley was being held, the visiting logs show that um, Jonathan Dowdell had actually gone to see Pierce McCauley 14 times. So... Pierce McCauley wasn't a factor in this case. But even when Jonathan Dowdall was just being questioned about what kind of character he was, what kind of man he was, who he kind of hung out with, who he knew, he couldn't tell the truth about minor things. And he wasn't, he didn't seem to be clever enough to know if I'm being asked about Pierce McCauley, about going to see him in jail, these people asking the questions have their homework done and they have the evidence to put to me now in literally 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour. So I better be honest from the off to try and build a picture of myself in court as a credible person who's done bad things in the past, but is now being honest. He was incapable of even playing that game. And of course, once you tell lies in one part of your testimony, the rest of your testimony is damaged goods. I'll continue my conversation with Connor Lally after this short break. It's it's really worth pointing out that while uh, Jerry the Monk Hutch walked out of that court yesterday, an innocent man, innocent of the crime he was being charged with, the judge was very, very clear that he had been in control of the weapons that were used after the event. There was no proof that he was in control of them before. After the event, he, he was in control. So he was in control of AK-47s that he brought up and gave to dissident Republicans. So 
he was in, that, that was one thing he did. And the judge was also really clear that this was a hutch sort of enterprise. It was an organised crime, hutch family, and I use family in the broadest possible sense, enterprise. So could, for example, he be charged? Could they go back again for another bite of that cherry? Could they charge him with, with what the judge has already said? Well, look, you know, we have the evidence for that. Yeah, I mean, the AK-47s, are, I, I think, are a really interesting item here. And the reason why they're really interesting was, as far as I, as far as I can tell, the AK-47s and the, the kind of evidence presented about the guns was the only line of evidence that was believed the whole way by the court. The guns were basically seized from a Republican about five weeks after the attack. And when those guns were seized, they were analysed and eventually... The Gardaí were satisfied that at least two of the three firearms were the guns from the Regency, okay? And the judge also accepted that these guns were in the car when Gerard Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall drove to Northern Ireland in the aftermath of the attack on the hotel. So the court then further accepted that Jerry Hutch was in charge of these guns during that, that period. So if you could wind back the clock, had they gone with a firearms charge against Jerry Hutch, i.e., possession of three AK-47s, they would have gotten that over the line. I don't think they will charge him with those firearms offences again because, I mean, in general terms, you can't really run a trial like that, you know, a very high-profile trial, go through all of that evidence based on one particular charge and then after the prosecution fails, um, you can't really go back and shop through what was said in court, pick out the bits and pieces that you want and kind of go again. It just doesn't work like that. The search for justice continues, but the monk has had his day in court and after a year and a half in custody, is a free man once more. So things could have been very different for Jerry Hutch uh, today, Wednesday. On Monday morning, he woke up, he could have been going to jail for the rest of his life. He's 60. He, the, the sentence, what's the average sentence? About 20 years. So he could, he, he could have been going to jail for the rest of his life. He's not in jail. He's free. He's walking around. Um, do we know what next for Jerry Hutch or Gerard Hutch, as Jonathan Dowdall kept on referring yeah. to? So certainly what we do know about Gerard Hutch is, is that he has a lot of money. Um, I did a profile of him in the Irish Times uh, during the week. And like when Jerry Hutch was 18 years old, he was able to buy his first house, £10,000 cash. His girlfriend was pregnant at the time and he basically bought a house for her and their child, €10,000 cash done. And then he has been a suspect for a lot of armed raids down the years. You know, some of them very high value and very high profile. But he was also involved in a lot of robberies that don't, that aren't ever really written about. I came across one where £100,000 was robbed from a cash and transit van collecting cash from a supermarket in Sutton here in Dublin. And there was £100,000 robbed at that time. And that was back in like, you know, the early 80s. Huge money. Um, It was only about a year and a half after Jerry Hutch was able to buy his first house for £10,000 cash. So even £100,000 at that stage was a massive amount of money. And what we know about Jerry Hutch is, is that very quickly he went into property really quickly. And before anybody had even coined the phrase Celtic Tiger, before the economy in Ireland had taken off at all, he was investing in things like apartment blocks, not like one or two apartments, but he was funding the construction and renovation of whole apartment blocks and keeping 10 of the apartments, things like that. So 
Jerry Hutch is worth a lot of money. So the million quid the cab took off him, that's that's nothing. Yeah, so cab took 1.2 million off him, basically for unpaid taxes. He would have had a lot of other cash because by the time the property boom came along, he had a lot of skin in the game and all of that property would have went up in value. So he had a lot of money. So he can do, he can go where he wants, you know, effectively. But it's kind of funny with Jerry Hutch and all these guys are the same. You know, you can buy the house in Clontarf and you can move your kids out there and hope for a better future for them and keep them out of crime and keep them out of poverty. He was still kind of mired in the same life that he was brought up in. He was still hanging around in the same area, hanging around with the same people. So he never actually climbed out of that environment for all his money. You know, for all the talk about him buying the house in Clontarf, he's an inner city man and he always has been. His character never really changed. And generally people like that, when they move abroad, they don't cope well because they're isolated. They're away from this tight-knit, normally family-based group that they have around them at home, and they don't do very well when they go abroad. So by the time the Regency Hotel hotel attack happened back in 2016, Jerry Hutch had been spending a lot of time in Lanzarote and also in Turkey. And he was living in Lanzarote pretty much full-time when the Regency attack happened. So the expectation now is he'll be unsafe in Ireland because the Kinahans will still want to shoot him dead, basically. The Gardaí think he cannot stay here. So the question is, where does he go? Does he go to somewhere like, you know, Lanzarote again? Probably not. You know, it's kind of too obvious he'd be too easy a target there. So we don't know where he's going to go. I mean, that's, you know, the honest answer. Ironically, I kind of nearly feel he'd be safer here in Ireland because I think if he stayed here, the guards may have to put protection on his home. Like they have with his brother. The way they have with Patsy Hodge. I, I kind of think they would have to. But then again, the Kinahans have so many contacts here. They're still so wealthy. They could probably find people in Ireland to shoot Jerry Hutch if they, if they tried. So maybe Ireland isn't an option for him. It's very hard to see where he can go. Certainly any country with an expat presence, like Irish or English people, the minute he turns up there, word just goes back. It'll come back to Ireland and he will be a target. So he's looking at starting out somewhere you know, very unusual for him. Will he be ever charged with any other crime? He's under investigation now for directing an organised crime gang. So there may be charges on that? There may be charges on that, but after the way this case has gone, the DPP will want to have a case absolutely in the bag, you know, over and done, fantastic evidence, Um, before they would ever chance charging him. Well, the evidence during the trial, 50, 52 days, was it, that, you know, we got kind of an insight into policing and we got an insight into how the Gardaí, you know, police gang crime. Um, That was in 2016. That's a long time ago. Has the way the Gardaí police gangland crime changed? Well, the answer to that question is yes. Um, And I'd go as far as to say the Regency Hotel, I mean, don't forget, we woke up the day after, like, you know, people woke up the day after the attack at the hotel to photographs splashed on the front pages of men with AK-47s barging into a hotel, broad daylight, dressed in mock guard uniforms, opening fire at an event with about 300 people you know, like there were 
kids there with their parents and everything. So we shouldn't forget how shocking that actually was. Like some of the people who were shot and wounded staggered out of the hotel into the traffic outside and waved down taxis to be brought to hospital. It was just a horror show. People fled in terror, children as young as five, screaming for their lives. I've been covering crime for well over 10 years at this stage. And I think when you look back to before my time in journalism, I mean, I think the murder of Veronica Guerin was the big seismic event in Irish organised crime. Um, And that was regarded as the big event for years and still kind of is. And if I look back over the last, say, 30 30 years or so, I would rank the Regency Hotel up there with the murder of Veronica Guerin. As a turning point. Absolutely. Because it was a wake-up call for the guards, and and guards have told me this even on the record during interviews, they say it was a wake-up call for the guards. So say, for example, the media were outside the Regency Hotel on the day this attack happened, there was no guards there. I mean, the dogs in the streets, I certainly knew that Daniel Kinahan was among two or three top leaders of the Kinahan cartel. And I knew at that stage that the Kinahan cartel was the major wholesaler for drugs in Ireland. I'm still staggered by the fact that there wasn't guard eyes on Daniel Kinahan just for the sake of keeping an eye on him when he was in Ireland. He was just such a significant figure in the history of Irish organised crime. It's just very surprising that there weren't eyes on him. Just just to see, who is he with? Where is he going? Where does he stay when he's in Ireland? Who are his close friends now? And that wasn't happening. So the media had more interest and put more resources into Daniel Kinahan on, on the day of the Regency attack than the guards did. And I think there's an acceptance from the guards that that is true. That's, it's, I mean, it's clearly true. So then you ask yourself, what happens then afterwards? Well, what happens afterwards is, okay, the cutbacks stop. They plough lots of money into, you know, the various anti-gangland units in the guards. The Regency gives on Garda Shia a shot in the arm. You know, you have to get up now and go after these people and try and get a handle on it all. And even though the killings continued on the streets of Dublin and, you know, sometimes elsewhere for the next two and a half years, really during that two and a half year period, the Gardaí really got on top of the gangs. They got on top of the... Kinahan cartel, they also got on top of the Hutch gang. And if you look at the record of the of Garda Shia since then, I mean, they have jailed literally scores of men. It's no exaggeration to say the guards have done an absolutely spectacular job, on particularly on the Kinahan cartel in Ireland since the Regency attack. And I think that's why, probably why we're so shocked at what happened with the Jerry Hutch trial. It's completely at odds with how the other cases were run, quality of evidence, and so on. They seem to reach for Jerry Hutch to bring him down to convict him of the killing of David Byrne when they just didn't have the goods on him. Conor Lally, thanks very much. That's it for today. For more Irish Times journalism, including reports and analysis on every aspect of the murder trial of Gerard the Monk Hutch from Conor Gallagher, Conor Lally and Mary Carolyn, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>